some words from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is firmly bound together. To it the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. And so we start with our opening song of worship this morning. And if you are able to and would like to, you are invited to stand with us as we sing, Great God, your love has called us here. going to come now to God in prayer. I will lead us in a short prayer of approach and then after that we are all invited to join together if we so wish in praying the Lord's Prayer, the words that Jesus taught his friends and we use whichever language and whichever version feels most comfortable and natural for us. There will be a version on screen if anybody wants one to follow. So let us pray together. 
God of love who has called us here, who knows each one of us by name and holds us safe in your hands, gladly we worship and adore you. You have made each one of us in your own likeness, knowing us when we were hidden in our mother's wombs, imagining all that life might be for us. We delight in our uniqueness, each with our own gifts and skills, and we value our life in community where we may learn and grow as we discover who we are in Christ. Sometimes life is good, and sometimes life is hard. Sometimes we succeed, and sometimes we fail. Yet, always, you are with us, come what may. As we meet here today, to listen and to learn, to praise and to pray, Help us to become just a little more aware that here and now you are with us. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught his followers how to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. of weeks ago at Friday Friendship we had a Bible quiz and it went down really well. People seemed to really enjoy it. So I thought, well, why not have a little Bible quiz this morning? And Anne's looking worried. <laughs> the theme of our Bible quiz is journeys. So all of, the, all of the questions relate to journeys that people in the Bible take. Some of them are where they went, some of them are about who it was that made the journey. 
So an easy one to start off with, I hope. Mary and Joseph left their home in Nazareth to register in which city? Hands up. Freya. Uh, they weren't registering Bethlehem. They were Beth- the world. They, were, they did go to Bethlehem. Was it Bethlehem you had to register? I know I've got it wrong, haven't I? There you go. Great. Well done, Freya. I'm wrong. You're right. Well done. It's all right. This is what happens when you do it in a hurry. I've got Jerusalem, but you're right. It was Bethlehem that was the house of David. So there we go. Freya knows her Bible better than I do. Ian was giving me the most weird looks then. It was great. Well, hopefully I've got the rest right. Sorry about that, Freya. You were right. I was wrong. Okay. So that wasn't so easy, was it, if I got it wrong? According to the parable, who was travelling from Jerusalem to Jericho? The parable, and somebody was travelling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Thank you, Jeff. It was the man who was attacked by bandits, or the man who was was rescued by the Good Samaritan. We don't know which way the Good Samaritan was going. He might have been going the same way. He might have been going the other way. We've no idea. Okay. Jesus left Capernaum for which town where he met a widow whose only son had recently died? We had this story a few weeks ago, so this is a bit of a memory test. It was Nain. Thank you, Ian. Yep, the, the, the widow of Nain. Who boarded a ship to take him from Joppa to Tarshish? Jonah. 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 Yeah, that was quick. <laughs> I did a musical of it. Oh, you did the musical of it. Well, <laughs> not the uh, Jonah Man jazz one. Okay. Philip was travelling on a desert road between which two places when he met the Ethiopian eunuch? Oh, lots of nice puzzled faces now. And I know I got this one right because I got this one off the web. So, <laughs> Okay. Anybody, any ideas? He was going on the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. Mm. What was the name of the street in Damascus where Ananias first met Saul of Tarsus? Somebody got it here? Straight Street. It was Straight Street. Yep, well done. Where was the first place that Paul and Barnabas sailed to together? (laughs) Any ideas? They went to Cyprus first. I didn't know. I, I looked that one up. Paul and Timothy sailed from Troas to Samthrace, something like that anyway, Samthrace, something like that, where they met a group of women, including one who was a dealer in purple. What was her name? Lydia. 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 Got that one quickly. (laughs) Well done. Who travelled together from Moab to Bethlehem? Ruth. And? (coughs) Yes, Ruth and Naomi. Yep. When Jesus travelled from Judea to Galilee via Samaria, he met a woman by a well from which town? Yeah, it was Sikar. Thank you. Yes. And that's it. So lots and lots of journeys in the Bible. And that's just a few of them. And as you can see, I can get them wrong as easily as the next person. So we don't really remember all about them, but it's, it's full of stories about journeys Some of them are very ordinary journeys, just somebody went from this place to that place. And some were really significant journeys. Either people were sent by God or believed they were sent by God, or they had an encounter with God, or something special happened for them. And I guess that's a bit like life, isn't it? So most of the time it's just ordinary. We just plod along doing whatever we're doing. But every now and then, maybe something different happens, something special, something that strikes us as important. It's a great excuse to sing one of our favourite songs, I decided, because actually we haven't sung it for three weeks. And, you know, you've kind of got to keep it in mind or we'll all forget it. So we're going to sing One More Step Along the World I Go.
The first reading is from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from his tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, My Lord, if I find favour with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into his tent to Sarah, and said, Make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the servant, who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. The second reading is Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35. Now on that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. And as he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, The things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and all besides this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb earlier this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted, them, interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it is almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread.
going to start with a couple of stories that relate to journeys that I took one a long time ago in the 1980s and one last summer. It was probably about 1982, 83, something like that, and I was home from college in London, and I was standing at the bus stop opposite my house where I lived with my family, waiting to go into town in Northampton. And a woman came along to the bus stop and started chatting to me. Now, you have to understand that in the south of England, that's pretty unusual. Otherwise, the story just probably doesn't make any sense. Anyway, she started chatting to me about a train journey that she and I had apparently been on. And I looked at her decidedly blankly because I didn't know her from Eve or Adam. And she said, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, no. So she told me that she had been on this trip to London with me and my mum a couple of weeks earlier. Well, I was definitely not there. So anyway, I went to town and I came back and I said to my mum, oh, you never guess what happened. And she said, ah, actually, a couple of weeks ago, I did go to London with your sister. The woman had mistaken me for my sister, who is three years younger than me and is at least three inches taller than me and at the time was about three sizes smaller than I was at the time. But we both had long hair and a ponytail, so I guess she could be forgiven for mixing us up. The other one last summer was a journey again down to uh, Northampton, or actually it was to Wellingborough, um, on the overnight coach. Uh, so I travelled overnight, and I went to the care home where my mum is now living, and I breezed in, found her in the day room, and sat next to her and said, Hello. Hello, she said. You're not going to believe this, but you look awfully like my elder daughter. Why? I said, yes. Oh. Well, why do you think that might be? I don't know, she said. Might it be that I am your elder daughter? <gasps> yes, she said. Yes, and then she recognised me, and it was okay. I'm very grateful that since that day, that hasn't been repeated. I know the day will come when she doesn't recognise me anymore and I've had a glimpse of what that might be like. But these were stories that came back to my mind as I was thinking about the story of the Emmaus Road, a story that's really familiar to us, a story undertaken by two distressed, bewildered people who met a stranger on the way and then suddenly realised who he was and rushed back to the city they'd just come from to tell their friends what they'd experienced. Sometimes, at least for me, it's the most blatantly obvious things that I don't notice. And one of the things I realised this week was it doesn't matter which gospel it is, and it doesn't matter which encounter it is, in some senses, all of the resurrection appearances of Jesus have roughly the same format. The simplest and most mundane is the account in the synoptics of a group of women travelling, we assume, a short distance, taking with them spices to anoint the body of their dead rabbi. When they reach that place, they encounter mysterious messengers. It might be men in white, it might be angels, it depends which of the Gospels you look at. And then they turn around and they rush away. Mark has them running away terrified and saying nothing. Matthew and Luke have them rushing back to tell the disciples what they have seen. And not so very different, really, is the story in John, although he has a number of journeys mixed up together. There's Mary Magdalene, whose journey is in two parts. She comes to the tomb, she finds it open, and she runs all the way back again to tell the disciples 
that the tomb is open. And then she comes back to the tomb and is in the garden weeping because she doesn't know what on earth is going on. And a man that she assumes is the gardener speaks to her. And when her name is spoken, she realises that this is Jesus. Also in John's story, we have the disciples who rush to the tomb. One stays outside, one goes inside, has a look. They discover, yep, yep, Jesus is gone. And then they go back again. No revelation to them at this point. They go back, they lock themselves in a room. They're terrified this is even worse than they could have thought. And in that room, they have an encounter with Jesus. And then there's a story of the miraculous catch of fish, which is probably in the second edition of John's Gospel. You, those of you, I'm sure, are all familiar with the fact that John's Gospel stops, then goes on a bit, and then stops again. We have virtually the same ending at the end of chapter 21 and 22, if I remember the chapter numbers correctly. But anyway, the last two chapters. So they go out to fish on the Sea of Galilee, And they're hoping to catch some fish, and they don't. So it's a journey outwards in disappointment. And then this man tells them to throw the net to the other side, and it fills with 153 fish. They drag them back to the shore, and they discover that this is Jesus. These stories going out and back seem to have a similarity to them. The Emmaus Road, unique to Luke's gospel, although the longer ending of Mark kind of hints at it, has the same theme, the same plot line, really. Sad, dejected people set out on a journey away from Jerusalem to their home in Emmaus. They encounter a mysterious stranger and they only recognise him as Jesus when he breaks bread and then disappears. And then they rush back to Jerusalem to share their story. Excuse me, I've just got some ice. As well as the physical journeys, there is at least one kind of metaphorical journey, which is that of Thomas. For whatever reason, and we will never know, He wasn't there on that day of resurrection. And so he had this whole week of the kind of wandering and wandering. And then he had his own mysterious encounter a week later. And there are resonances between these encounters and the Old Testament story of Abraham and Sarah at Mamre. Three men arrive, three men they don't know, but who are identified retrospectively with God. Now, some Christians see this as uh, an, the earliest um, presentation of, this, of the Trinity, and Rublev's icon is a particularly uh, well-known example of this. But anyway, these were strange people who just came, they didn't recognise them, and they entertained them. I found myself wanting to think about the idea of journey as a metaphor and also about the mysterious encounters that changed everything because these seem to be the two factors in these stories. There's a journey and a mystery. In everyday life experience, journeys are very diverse, aren't they? At one extreme... There's the totally mundane trip to the corner shop to buy a newspaper or a pint of milk. And at the other extreme, the meticulously planned holiday of a lifetime with a precise itinerary and eager anticipation. Journeys can be long in distance or duration, such as driving all the way to Cornwall or taking a train to Plymouth. Or they can be as short as a bus trip into town. Irrespective of how long they are, they can be dull and boring, or they can be exciting and interesting. 
Some journeys we choose to make and others we make out of necessity. Some journeys are planned a long time in advance and others are spontaneous or unexpected. Most of the time, we wouldn't even talk about mundane everyday outings or some of the unchosen travel as a journey. We tend to think of a journey as, as something that's chosen and something that's intentional, although the metaphor of journey is used very, very widely now in society. Perhaps it's helpful to recognise the wider application of the word giving ourselves permission to use it as a metaphor for the experiences that are not actually big or important or even of long-term personal significance. So, for example, we come to church Sunday by Sunday, and this is a journey that is very routine, very ordinary, and at the same time it's something we choose to do and something that we do with an intention. Most weeks, nothing very significant will happen. That's just how it is. No matter how good my sermon is, most of the time, nothing very significant is going to happen. But just now and then, there'll be something. An idea, an experience, a conversation, a symbol that we share that turns that into something different, something special. Something that for us as individuals, if not altogether, is significant. The two people who set off on the road to Emmaus were almost certainly on a mundane trip out of the city. No one is absolutely sure where Emmaus was. Um, the seven miles may be that it was literally seven miles away, or actually seven miles may be the distance for a round trip, which just makes it more complicated. It's possible, and some scholars suggest, that these were disciples of Jesus who were visiting Jerusalem for the Passover, and they were lodging at Emmaus, which was a walkable distance out of the city, about three, three and a half miles away, so an hour's walk or so. Each morning, they would walk into the city, they would take part in what was going on there, and then in the evening, they'd walk home in inverted commas, to where they were staying. And as they went on their way, they could chat about their experiences of the day in the same way that we might. Whatever the background, this was just a walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus, an opportunity to talk, to try and make sense of what had gone on in the last few days, and to share their sorrow, incredulity and bewilderment. This Jesus, of whom they had been disciples, has been arrested and executed. And now those closest to him are telling unbelievable stories about an empty tomb and angels talking to women, for goodness sake. What is going on? They're so overwhelmed and so engrossed in their own conversation that they don't notice that somebody comes alongside and starts to listen in. Because we've heard the story so many times, we know who it is. But they don't. It's just two weary, demoralised people walking along. And this person says, well, what on earth has been going on? You tell me. And because they're so engrossed in their private world of grief... They can't believe that anybody else doesn't know about it. But actually, most people wouldn't have known about it. Most people in Jerusalem were just going around their everyday lives. They hadn't been bothered who this Jesus was. They hadn't been down to the garden and seen that the tomb was open. It was just one of these would-be messiahs that had popped up and been executed the followers are all in hiding. We just get on with our normal lives. But for them, this is so important. They can't understand why anybody doesn't know about it. And the journey carries on. And the stranger asks them to explain this. Well, what has been happening? 
three days ago, Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, a wonder worker, who they had dared to hope might be the one to redeem Israel, had been executed. Now the tomb has been found open, and what's more, the body is gone. I wonder if they shared their ideas about what might have happened to the body. Did they express their opinions on the report of the women? We'll never know. We do know that they told their story and the stranger listened carefully. Being heard, being believed, having their experience recognised and accepted was a very important step on their own inner journey. And I think the same is true for us. I really hope that Jesus had a twinkle in his eye and a note of teasing in his voice when he commented on how foolish and slow of heart they were. I hope that he gently told them not to be dismayed, but rather to recall how their own scriptures had so much to say about the Christ, the Messiah. I hope so, because I find it really hard to imagine how I would have felt in such a moment to have my faith and my integrity questioned by a stranger. He listened, and I hope gently nudged them out of an impasse of desolation and began to guide them forwards, reminding them of the stories of Moses and the prophets. Perhaps we need people sometimes to remind us of our own stories. As they neared journey's end, they'd warmed to this stranger who had so much to say that, that helped them to make sense of what was going on. So they said, well, come and have dinner with us. It's late and you might as well stay with us as, as go on wherever it is you're going. And then it happened. That inexplicable penny-dropping moment as they gathered to share a meal together. They asked the stranger to say grace and as he broke the bread they realised who he was. Every resurrection appearance has such a moment when time stands still when hearts and minds and eyes are opened and recognition occurs. The clear pass, it's the breaking of bread. For Mary Magdalene, the speaking of her name. For Thomas, the invitation to touch the wounds. For each character in their own private inner journey, there is a turning point. From not recognising a stranger to recognising Jesus the Christ. From not understanding what was going on to understanding that something they couldn't actually understand was happening. If that double understanding and not understanding works. From sorrow or doubt or guilt to joy, faith, and release, or maybe all of these and more. Some Christians can and do speak of hugely profound moments when suddenly everything drops into place and they believe Jesus to be the Christ of God. Other Christians report that they've always believed that doubt or questioning have not been part of their experience. But most, at least in my experience, come somewhere between the two. Using the language of journey or the language of process. Something that was mostly pretty mundane and unexciting, actually, and took a long time. And they thought, and they questioned, and they wondered. And other people came alongside, whether literally or metaphorically, and journeyed with them listened to them, 
shared stories and ideas and understandings until one day, very often unrecognized and totally unremarkable, they realized that they owned this faith for themselves. And I think that carries on through the whole of life. Conversion, if we use that language, is not just an event. It's a process. But it goes beyond the overtly spiritual, beyond those things that are explicitly Christian. Each one of us have our own story, which is unique. And within that story, we each have our own journey or journeys. Each of us is sometimes despondent and disillusioned, desperately trying to make sense of what on earth is going on. I believe quite firmly that in these times, Christ comes alongside us, unrecognised and unrecognisable in the guise of friends and strangers. The people who listen to our stories, our fears, our doubts. The people who absorb our anger or our grief or our bewilderment. The people who gently question our questioning and work their way through our defences and help us to find at least some measure of meaning. People who are there for us in our time of need, maybe medical professionals, maybe support groups, maybe charities, whatever it is, and who then just as swiftly disappear from our lives. My experience is it's often only afterwards, after we've reached the turning point in our journey and when we are travelling onwards towards that new future with a slightly lighter heart and a little bit more spring in our step, that we realise and recognise it was the Christ of God who met us on our own Emmaus Road, in our own upper room, in our own garden, or on our own seashore. The resurrection experiences are strange, mysterious stories that defy logic and, of course, are beyond independent verification. (coughs) At the same time, they ring true with the experience of Jesus' followers in our own time, who, if willing to suspend disbelief and become like children, may yet encounter the risen Christ along the journey of their own lives. I found a hymn that we're going to sing. It's a new hymn to all of us. It's a Methodist hymn written by a a man called Reverend Dr. Andrew Pratt, who used to teach at the Methodist College in Manchester. But it captures some of what I've been trying to say. Such enchantment, such strangeness, power and love by God distilled. Oh, 
Now let us bring our prayers to God for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. O God, our Father, we give thanks for this opportunity to come to you in prayer. Help us in these moments of quiet contemplation to discern your presence among us, for you have promised that where two or three are gathered together in your name, you are there in the midst. Open our eyes and our hearts that we, like the disciples, on the Emmaus Road, may be truly conscious of your living presence among us. It is easy for us to be so involved with the affairs of every day that we forget that you are ever with us in all the responsibilities and concerns of daily living. Teach us to reach out to you in the midst of our life experience, in the times of joy and sorrow, in times of elation, and in moments of our greatest concern. At this hour, we would bring to you our prayers for our world, our world in its great global and international scale, right down to the minute details of our individual life day by day and hour by hour. We find it difficult to understand how you might be concerned for this vast world and its many problems and challenges the problems of climate change and our stewardship of its resources on the land, under the earth, in the seas and even in the skies above us. We pray that you might touch the hearts of humankind, that we may be prepared to use wisely and fairly the enormous resources of our planet and to help reduce poverty, to eliminate disease and to promote economic systems where all might share in the bounty of this world. We also may find it difficult to comprehend how you have concern for the teeming millions who occupy the nations of the world, and yet we we believe that your love extends to each and every human soul, no matter what their colour or race or sex, and so help us to follow that first principle and greatest command of all by showing our true love for one another as you have first loved us. Let us remember that you, our God, are infinite and not limited by our understanding. And so what might seem impossible to us is possible to you, our Lord and our Saviour. We pray for our nation and our city. We are entering a period when, as citizens, we are asked to elect or re-elect our political leaders. In this coming week, we will have to cast our votes in the local elections. And and in future weeks, we will be asked to express our choice in the general election in June. May we, in making all these choices, do so prayerfully and with regard to our understanding of how the mind of Christ might be reflected in the policies implemented by our political and civic leaders. Lord, in our prayers, we would ask you to help and support your help and support for all that we seek to do here in our own fellowship. We pray that a caring spirit might inspire us to show love to one another in our lives together. We pray for our church family in an uncertain future as we await further action on our development. In the meantime, we pray for all in our church community that we may be filled with a spirit of love and care. We think of families visited by concerns about health frailty and old age, 
And we would also pray for all for young people sitting exams at school or college or university and those who are seeking to enter a career. This week we would ask a special blessing on Geoffrey and Carol when they are married later this week. May they be richly blessed in their life together as they embark on this new chapter. Finally, we ask that as we travel along our own modern-day Emmaus Road, we will find that the living presence of God may be revealed to us, often in unexpected ways, and that we never forget your promise to be with us in all things and at all times. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Loving and generous God who journeys with us every step of the way, every single day, whether we recognise you or not, we bring these our gifts of money and dedicate them to that ongoing journey as we seek to share and be good news in this place and throughout the world. Amen. Our closing hymn is another journeying hymn, and Lena's happy because I know she likes it very much. It's a nice bouncy one, and then we're going to go straight after that into a sung blessing, which is very beautiful and very still. So a, a very quick change of mood at that point, but hopefully it will work out with a bit of help from our skillful musicians. Thanks, Paul. Oh, God. 